Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 80, recorded on August 15th of 2019, the Photo Geekery Show, where me and a guest get up to all sorts of no good, digging under the uh, under the hood of um, whatever technical, uh, logistical, ethical, or sometimes even legal uh, stories that we can find in the photographic news cycle of the week. I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, and with me today, a crowd favorite, back again, is Steve Brazel. Steve, welcome back. I'm waving to the in silence. <laughs> How are you, Don? I'm good. I'm good. Um, I'm sure, just like you, uh, rather exhausted by just the rigmarole of uh, of life and everything that we have to do in every given day, uh, especially gearing up for workshops and things like that. It uh, a, a day just disappears, and you don't even realize. I mean, you did a lot, but when you try to remember it all, it just doesn't come through. So, Steve, I'm sure you can appreciate uh, how how days just disappear, right? I definitely do. Days fly by, and it seems to get worse the older that you get. <laughs> well, and you were just mentioning sort of in the uh, proverbial green room that you have, uh, what, like, how many acres of land do you have to mow? Not acres. I have a third of an acre. Okay. Well, that's still uh, quite but in 100-degree Southern California weather, it's, it you know, it's two to three hours in the sun by the time I get everything done, and... And I'm still not tan. <laughs> I I don't I, I would love to see you tan, Steve. I think that would be quite hilarious. Um, you know, it, I I it's funny because my my wife grew up in a country in Eastern Europe, and she spent a lot of time outside. And I am like a technology geek that spent my childhood playing video games, and I'm more tan than she is when I spend time outside in the garden. Uh, yeah. Uh, technology is uh, is an interesting thing to get back to, uh, sort of uh, what we were talking about in the green room. Um, I, Steve, I love technology, and and you know I love technology. <laughs> You've got it in your hand. Uh, but <laughs> you know sometimes things just don't work the way we want them to. And uh, uh, slight um, uh, down the rabbit hole uh, tangent here. I, I wanted to upgrade the audio on my computer and potentially get a better, better line in on my microphone. And I saw that Creative Labs, uh, they're still around, and they just came out with a new sound card, the AE9, which, if you look at the specs on paper, is the best sound card that has ever been made um, on a prosumer level for computers. And it has, in its uh, sort of junction box, it has a, uh, an XLR port. And so I can plug my microphone directly into the sound card, which I thought would be awesome. And we wasted about an hour troubleshooting uh, issues with this device. And uh, it looks like it could all be solved with software. It looks like the hardware is solid, um, but creative. And they've done this in the past, and I've been burned by it, and I should have learned. Um, they make awesome hardware. Their software sucks. And um, and I even reported uh, because it was just weird. There's a plus 48 volt button uh, to provide phantom power to an XLR microphone uh, if it requires that. Uh, and I use a dynamic microphone, a Heil PR40 for these recordings. Same and it mic does, as I use. Uh, and it's a great mic. Uh, love it. It does not require phantom power. Uh, it was giving me absolutely no audio input without having phantom power enabled, which let me think that the plus 48 volt button was functioning as an on-off button for the XLR microphone port, which would then always be providing uh, phantom power to a microphone that doesn't need it. And that doesn't necessarily break the microphone, but you might get some amount of line noise or hum that would be Theoretically, in it process. should not affect it, but yeah, it's, if you don't need it, you would generally, if you, if you had a console and you don't need 
48 volt phantom power or whatever other voltage because it you can have phantom power in, in different power structures you would turn it off as an audio engineer exactly and so i here i am scratching my head thinking i don't need it but it doesn't work without me turning it on and creative admitted fault that they uh, that that somehow passed through all of their beta testing and quality assurances which I, you know, it just raises a red flag for me because that's such a simple thing all you'd have to do is plug a dynamic microphone into the port and realize there's a problem so they didn't do that at any point in the development process of this product and uh, well and especially since their their actual specialty is sound right yeah when you come out of it thinking <laughs> Well, it's, you know, this is a development team that's programming stuff, but they're really not sound people. That's their business is sound. Yeah, and so I was a little bit dismayed by that, but uh, oh well, live and learn uh, with a $350 sound card that I couldn't even buy myself. Because they only sell it direct. They don't sell it through anybody else. And they do not have a store in Canada. And they will not ship to Canada. So my good buddy Steve, uh, I mailed it to him. And uh, then he uh, reciprocated that back to me. Uh, and so I had to you know, pay the extra shipping and duty and everything, thinking that, okay, it's going to be worth it. And here I am, a sad little puppy. But uh, Hang on one sec, because Customs is at my door, and I got to... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boy. Um, but uh, thank you for that, Steve. I appreciate you uh, redirecting things to me. And I had to pay uh, quite a bit on the on the customs and duty side of things. And I knew that I would. I don't want to lie about the value of things crossing the border. Uh, but it just adds insult to injury, salt in the wound, as it were. All right, Steve. Um, enough of this back and forth banter. Uh, let's get into some of the stories of the week. I'm going to uh, kind of get into the first one, and then I want to touch base on your podcast before we carry on, because there's some interesting episodes that I've seen come up lately. Um, but story number one. Blackmagic Design unveils the Pocket Cinema Camera 6K, uh, and this is from DP Review. Blackmagic had uh, introduced their uh, Pocket 4K cinema camera uh, a while back, and uh, it was quite uh, revolutionary, not in terms of just the hardware, but the price point was really, really good on that. Right. Um, and so I was surprised at how much they could pack into such a small package using a micro four thirds uh, sensor size. Um, now we've got something a little bit different. This is uh, capable of 6K, obviously, as the, as the name uh, dictates, but it is using a Super 35 sensor. So that's bigger than a four-third sensor size. It's, it's, uh, it's roughly APS-C. It's roughly APS-C. It's not quite the same, but it is larger. Um, and that kind of tells me one thing off, off the top, that it's still not viable to do really good 6K on a micro four-third sensor with the current crop of technology. Otherwise, they may have gone that route. Um, and there's other reasons to choose a larger sensor, yeah, but too. That's, but that's, that's okay to me. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think I sent it to you, but somebody had posted online a comparison. They made the mistake of leaving the television on, so the lighting changed in this demo. But And they said, excuse the lighting change, but the TV was on. But the person posted a, 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 an example of the depth of field difference between the 4K Micro Four Thirds version and then the 6K version, and it was much nicer. I mean, it oh, was yeah. subtle, but it was there. Yeah, and, and that could easily be another reason for them to go for the larger sensor. Um, you know, it's interesting. I look at what RED is doing 
because red has the upcoming um, sort of attachment to the hydrogen, although it's probably a standalone product as well, uh, the Komodo, that is going to be using the new Canon RF mount and potentially an APS-C or Super 35-sized sensor within that. And here is Blackmagic using the old traditional Canon EF mount. And you can see the impact on the design for this because it has a noticeable protrusion before you even get to the uh, the lens contacts because you know, the lens mount was designed around a mirror box. And so you have to have that level of distance between the sensor and where the lens mounts. If red is going the way of the RF mount and embracing the mirrorless market, it just seems a little bit weird that Blackmagic isn't doing the same if somebody else is known to have been working on that exact same thing, right? Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Yeah. Uh, so, so what are your initial thoughts based on uh, the specs, uh, the connectivity, the audience that it's marketing at, and, uh, and where this kind of steps up for professional cinema on a very small scale? The first thought that hit me when I saw this well, actually, there are two thoughts that hit me when I saw this. The first thought, actually, was I wonder what Alex Lindsay would think of this. Uh, and I'm dying kind of to find out what he thinks if he ever gets his hands on it. But the other thing that hit me was it's all in the name, right? It's a pocket cinema camera. Yep. So they didn't intend this. While it does shoot 21 megapixel, 21.2 megapixel stills, it's designed purely as a cinema camera. And to me, and I'm not a videographer by any means, right? But to me, looking at the spec sheet and knowing it's from Blackmagic, who I trust, there's a lot in this to absolutely love. First of all, it's an EF mount, which means all that great Canon EF glass you've got available to you to, to do your videos with. It's even a Canon battery. It's the same battery as an LPE6. Oh, that's same a, that's kind of a standard. My, so many things use that. My Canon 5D Mark III and 5D IV. Now, here's what was interesting, though, with the battery thing. They, they're saying that it's going to get give you about 45 minutes for the battery. Now, there's two two card slots, a CFast and an SD card. And what they say is you can get over an hour of 6K video on a 256 gigabyte uh, SD UHS-2 card. Okay, you can get an hour of video on the card, but the battery's going to die in 45 minutes. <laughs> Yeah. So well, and so they must be using in order to get that amount of data onto uh, onto a card of that size, something like Hybrid Log Gamma, um, which you know produces a fairly nice dynamic range video, but the the actual bit rate is lower, which isn't a bad thing. It's just a, a different type of technology in order to get there. And I I don't know if that's true or not because I haven't had my hands on one of these to dig through all of the menus, uh, which is available now by the way this is not like some sort of yeah, pre it's available now and it's actually cost wise it's roughly 2500 bucks that is not bad that is the shocking point at this as well because just like i was shocked with the price of the uh the 4k cinema camera which i can't remember off the top of my head but it was going toe to toe with the best in its class uh you know for uh, micro four thirds uh video features from panasonic and anybody else that was in that market um so it- well, but but let me add one more thing on the video thing because this was interesting. I find it interesting that for a 6K camera, they put an SD card slot in there. They put CFast, right? So you got CFast. But they're even in, in their actual marketing material or in their, their specs, they're suggesting that you use because it has USB-C. And you can actually hook up an external hard drive via USB-C and you can record to the external hard drive. 
And they tell you right up front, recording 6K video could exceed the card specs, so you're better off to put an external SSD on and record to that. Which, you know, it's interesting. I keep saying it's interesting because it really is. It's a verbal tick of mine. But if you look at the the types of cards that are going into this, you've got SD and CFast, like you mentioned. Why not CFast and XQD? Uh, Yeah, the SD was an odd choice to me. Especially because uh, the XQD format is going to be forwards compatible with the CF Express format. It's the exact same pinout. It's the exact same bus. It's just a different okay. protocol. Um, because those cards, the uh, CF Express, will be using the NVMe protocol um, that uh, desktop SSDs now use for far and above um, the speeds that traditional SSDs would have been capable of, even on a PCI Express bus. So you can get speeds on a CFast card probably in the four to 500 megabyte per second range, just off the top of my head, where currently available, uh, at least uh, on paper, I haven't seen anybody selling them, but um, currently available from manufacturers, the throughput on those cards is 1.5 gigabytes per second. So that's more than three times the increase in bandwidth on those cards. It just takes a firmware update in order for the manufacturer to enable its support. But again, to me, recording straight to an external drive, most likely SSD, has so many other advantages, right? Because then I don't have to pull out a card, put it in a card reader, transfer the video at card speed or card reader speed. Now I've got a it, the video relying, you know, sitting on an SSD, I can just plug that into a computer, drag it off at super high speed. So there's workflow advantages to using an external drive here too. And if you're really doing serious video, that's great. There's other specs in here that I found interesting. Before we go on to that though, Steve, okay. um, I, I would say that where would you put that SSD? Because if you're putting it in your pocket, then you've got two points of failure where the cable connects on either end. And looking at the side of this camera, there's no locking mechanism that would keep that uh, USB-C cable directly and firmly connected to the camera. So one wrong twist, and it might come out. I disagree, Um, and here's why I disagree. I could picture, you'll notice there is a mount on the top of this camera. uh I could picture a mount, laptop size, you know, small form factor SSD in a case that mounts to that. You could even run a cable. If you put this thing in a rig, you could run a cable to a small external RAID. Well, here my, my thought process was going to a specific point, is that in order for you to mount the SSD in a way that is stable and secure, you'd probably want to have some sort of video cage around this camera. Um, and and that, in its, uh, in its essence, would make a lot of sense. For a videographer, you're going to have other doodads and accoutrements that are going to uh, be needed for whatever shot that you're trying to create. Agreed. Um, but in doing that, uh, you, you inherently now don't have a pocket camera anymore. Well, but again, I would argue you do still have a pocket camera. You just have a, a camera that meets multiple scenarios. So now you have flexibility. If you need the thing to be a pocket cinema camera, you've got a pocket cinema camera. Or if you need to, you know, load this thing up with accessories and put it in a cage, you've got that option too. Very good point. So really, it's a very flexible unit in that sense. You're not yep. losing the pocket features. You just don't always use them. Right. And uh, and so it uh, it records, and this was interesting I- I- into the uh, features here. So uh, two modes, it does a 6K and 4K, but a byline here um, it says it records full resolution at up to 60 frames per second. So mm-hmm. it's not like four, uh, 6K at 24, 30, and then you'd get your 4K at faster. It does 6K at 60. Um, yeah. 
And uh, that is impressive for the current generation of hardware that we're dealing with and the price point, because I don't think anything else can really touch it right now in this form factor. We've got additional gear coming down uh, down the road from every other manufacturer, and they're going to be looking at what this can do at that price point, and it might affect what those products end up becoming once they're eventually released. Well, and the price point, we keep coming back to the price point, right? Because my 5D4 is more expensive than this thing. This thing has built-in headphone and mic jacks, 3.5 millimeter. It's got a mini XLR that also supplies 48-volt phantom power, which we talked about earlier. There was one weird choice, and I'm curious what you think about this. It has a 5-inch touchscreen, which is awesome, right? A, it's not articulating. It will show you all the stuff that you care about, It, you know, focus peaking, levels, frame guides. As best as I could find, and I, I researched it on their side, everything, I see no mention of the word articulating. And what I do see is use Bluetooth because they even show somebody watching the display of this camera on an iPad over Bluetooth. Well, if they can get the frame rate and the quality on that up to snuff, then you've got uh, you've got something. Uh, I don't want to say transformative, but it gives you more options than connecting another wire with an external monitor. Which you know what, even this, if this doesn't have an external uh, or a, a, an articulating display at that price point, I'm okay with that. Uh, I am, except now we go back to what you said about you've lost the pocket camera feature, right? If you're right. going to use this in your pocket, you won't want another screen. Probably. If, if adding the articulation would raise the price by you know two hundred dollars or yeah. something like that, that might change the market. I, I don't know how elastic these prices are for such a product, especially because it is coming in considerably lower than the competition. And you mentioned from the beginning that it's definitely not tailored to stills, but it does have a uh, a shutter button with in the general vicinity of where a shutter button should be, and a front dial that would be normally used uh, to adjust camera settings on the fly as a which, by the way, I like where they put that dial. Yeah, it's not on the top like I'm used to. It's on the front of the grip. Yeah, and and I've I've used a I lot of that. cameras that have it in that location, and um, and I I prefer it to be honest. It just kind of keeps it out of the way, right? Sort of where your finger's going to be without any uh, uh, confusion so now, on that. So now let's talk about the two things that really jumped at me: dual native ISO. Yep, four hundred and thirty two hundred, both native ISO. That's really cool. 13 stops of DR. Now, usually when you see a dynamic range rating on a camera, they'll mention to you what ISO they were at measuring it. They don't do that here. They just say 13 stops of DR. So let's compare that with some of the, the mirrorless that are out there right now. The EOS R, because I looked all of this up. The EOS R is 10.9 when you're at 100 ISO, but it's 14.1 at 800, at 800 ISO. Mm-hmm. So it can vary a great deal from 100 to 800 ISO. I don't know where they're getting their 13 stops. The Nikon Z7 or Z7 is also about 11 at 100 ISO and about, it actually drops. They actually go down to 64 ISO. Sony a7R4, 15 stops. They don't give an ISO Yeah, that's uh, dramatic. And, and Sony has always been known for their, uh, their dynamic range on their cameras. But this is close at 13 well, and I think that especially at the price point, again, I keep coming back to that because what you get for your dollars in this kind of a camera, um, I... It's insane. I, yeah, it's, it's hard to, to justify why they're not charging more for it. There's, there's one thing video people that are listening will care about, probably, 
It does 10-bit Apple ProRes. It does Blackmagic RAW at 12-bit. And you mentioned the 60 frames a second, but what I found interesting in the specs, and again, I'm not a videographer, but this, this kind of stuck out at me and I thought it was interesting. They give the specs of 50 frames per second at 16.9 ratio. Mm-hmm. 60 frames per second at 2.4 to 1 or 1.9 to 1. Okay. And then it will do, you can even go 6 to 5 anamorphic ratio at 60 frames a second, but you drop down to 3.7K. Well, and to some people, that might be a worthy sacrifice. I don't know if I, I've never shot anything anamorphic, and nor do I own an anamorphic to me, it's lens. Not, it, to me, it's just more, depending on the, the videographer that you are, this will, you can work this into your workflow. It'll even do 120 frames a second at 2.8K. At, at 1.9 to 1. So depending on what you're shooting, I, you know, I, again, got a disclaimer, I'm not a videographer, but I just keep thinking to myself, the flexibility of this device seems to be everything that somebody could want. Time code, all kinds of stuff. And compatibility with a whole host of lenses you likely already own. Uh, and maybe that's the reason why they opted for the EF mount versus the RF mount. Uh, because in this case, the chances are you you might not own any RF lenses. Uh, but if you've been a cinematographer for a while, the EF mount has been not a universal standard. I mean, the PL mount, and there's lots of other mounts that video users will use, but it's definitely up there in compatibility. And you wouldn't need to then go and buy the RF to EF adapter, adding complexity to the design, especially if the communication protocols are new, and you might not be as well-versed in making that connection or uh, translation work. All in all... It's a pretty interesting device to me, and I, I, I'm dying to see what actual videography, you know, video people think of this. You know, I, I've never been a huge fan of having so much control on the touchscreen exclusively uh, as a stills photographer. I guess that makes a lot more sense when you're doing video because you're not uh, actively handling the camera in the same way you would be as a stills photographer. You're setting up a lot of stuff beforehand, and then you're taking that forward to the shoot where that camera is is as stable as possible once that recording button is hit. So I think they've hit uh, pretty well everything on the nose in terms of what it's, it's, uh, there's just There's want. a lot of potential in this device oh, yeah. for $2,500. Well, could you imagine outfitting yourself with three of these um, to do a three-camera shoot with lenses you probably already own, different focal lengths and, and whatever else, uh, at the same cost of of what the competition might be? I mean, it's that big of a difference in some cases. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. and again, the one thing we have not seen, I haven't seen any real sample footage to speak of. Well, that's true. I mean, who knows what it actually looks like, but based on the pedigree, I would be happy with the results. It is black magic. Yep. Uh, all right, Steve, before we get into our next story, which I think we'll have a fun time discussing, oh, uh, <laughs> well, uh, what of your podcast? What's been going on over there? Uh, Behind the Shot. It's at BehindTheShot.tv, and uh, I release on a schedule of every other Thursday, so every two weeks, basically. And just having a lot of fun. I just, I had a great guy on, a legend uh, motorsports photographer, really well known for shooting motocross back in the 70s and 80s, shoots for Lexus International, and we had a car shot that he was on. That was fantastic. You and I have spoken about Andy Day before. We've covered on your show a number of his articles from F-Stoppers, and literally the day we're recording this, which is Thursday, the 15th of October, uh... I just released the episode with Andy Day. He photographs adventure sports, specifically parkour. Uh, 
Oh, cool. And he has a multi-year project where he goes to all of these old monuments in Europe and specific areas of Europe, and he photographs parkour people on these monuments. And so we discussed one of those shots and kind of the project in particular, and we kind of dove into a little bit the power of a personal photo project. Yeah, and I've had many of them myself. And especially when you start them without the intention of monetization, um, it, it carries a lot more passion through it, right? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, so yeah, we're just having I'm having fun over there and and that's recording at behind and the shot TV and uh, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes, of course, at photogeekweekly.com. Uh, and I've been a recurring guest. I think I've been on three of your episodes. And yep. uh, so if you if you look up behind they are the, the shot, three most downloaded episodes, <laughs> wonderful. I'm glad all, I can all uh, top three, all yours. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, I'm sure they're easy to find if you just look up my name, uh, Don Kamarechka, and behind the shot. Uh, TV. All right, Steve. Uh, next story. This one is controversial. Uh, I'm just going to refresh the page here so I get accurate. Yeah, you know, number accidentally my it. mic just got turned off. <laughs> yeah. Oh, don't even go there. Uh, we had so many mic issues before we started recording, but I know yours is working now, sir. Oh, darn. Um, 665 comments on this Petapixel article. Yeah. Um, this street photographer became the target of an online <laughs> witch hunt. And so, okay, let's, let's understand a couple of things here. Street photography. You are on the street. You're in a public place. Usually there are crowds around. It could just be a busy intersection. It could be a fair. You have your camera. You document uh, candidly the, uh, the life and times of passersby, right? This can be somewhat deliberate. I know some street photographers that will go up and ask people to specifically pose for them or uh, somebody that will just wait on a street corner for somebody wearing the right color to walk by a certain amount of uh, or a certain display of graffiti in order to complement that in an interesting way. Street photographers have many different uh, uh, modes of operation. And uh, it's an art form in and of itself, one that I've done a little bit of work with. I remember years ago, I took a uh, street photography workshop with Chris Marquardt. And uh, Chris, great guy, great photographer. Tips from the top floor. Tips from the top floor. That's his podcast. I was on an episode recently as well. Um, And uh, he's a great instructor. He can convey knowledge very well, especially when he sees the work that you're producing and helps you move uh, move a step forward every every image that you take. Um, And so I learned some stuff from him uh, in street photography. But it's still not my my main um, point of exploration. When I go on a photo walk, I will explore street photography. Uh, but I did want to at least state that I have some experience with this genre of uh, of the uh, art form. And um, based and on, and I the think st- everybody's tried it. I think everybody everybody's tried landscape photography. Everybody's taken a picture of a person, right. whether or not it was in a studio. I mean, don't call yourself a portrait photographer, but at least you know something. Exactly. You dipped your toe into the water, tip of the iceberg stuff. Okay. So, I'm just going to read a little bit from the beginning of this article here. Street photographer Joshua Rosenthal visited the Ventura County Fair in Ventura, California this week and roamed the fairgrounds while shooting candid portraits of visitors. The next day, he woke up to find that he had become the target of a vicious uh, of vicious accusations on social media and a search by local vigilantes. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And and it was as bad as they describe it. It yeah. So uh, I'm going to jump down a little bit here, and um, there is 
a post made on, uh, I believe this is Facebook. Um, It says, warning, hey moms and dads, beware of this POS at the fair. This is all in caps, and then it goes down to normal letters. Uh, He's going around taking pictures of, in this case, little girls in dresses. You can see him walking by and snap a picture of a little girl. I didn't know I had captured him doing it until I got home and looked at the video I shot. Uh, Blank saw it happen and went to the police uh, that were walking around to report him. Etc. 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 It just kind of gets more vitriolic as as time goes on and more a- uh, accusational. So we have somebody, and I just I, I want to set the stage here factually. We have one person. Let's call them person A, that is walking around this fair, randomly shooting video of everybody and everything, and when reviewing their footage, finds person B randomly shooting stills of everybody and everything and starts to, uh, I'm going to say scream based on the lettering here, uh, character assassination type comments to them. So classic pot and kettle scenario here. Uh, yes. And, and again, let's stress, she didn't even realize she captured this guy until she got home and watched her video right. of the fair. So, (laughs) all right, um, I'm also the father of a three-year-old girl, so I can kind of talk from both angles here. Uh, Steve, I know you've got a son. Did you have any daughters? No, we had one child and figured that's enough. (laughs) Okay, well, we're we're at one child and that may stay that way. Um, But, so she's three years old, and if we were out in a park in a public place... And I saw a random photographer not paying any particular attention to any one particular person with a camera, maybe even getting up into faces and taking pictures, especially like the guy's holding a film camera. I mean, I noticed that, uh, but the average person might not. That Maybe that doesn't even matter. Um, I'd be saying, okay, this guy's just taking pictures of people at the park. Now, if somebody was sneakily... That's partially because you're a photographer. Yes, and, and so there's a bias there. There's an inherent bias, but... As a photographer or not a photographer, seeing somebody just sneakily pull their phone up and take a picture of something and then slide their phone back away, or being at a great distance with a super telephoto lens photographing you know, people from very far away, that um, kind of excludes them from the interaction uh, in a sense that I, I find a lot creepier than being literally present in front of somebody, making yourself very well known that your photo is being taken uh, by the photographer. And yeah, not all people will like that. But, and this comes down to the line of uh, morality versus legality, right? And everybody- Which he I references, think, by the way, in the article. We, we all draw that line from a different perspective. And I think as human beings, we all have tribal associations. We want to wave a banner that we can kind of get behind as, a, as an individual, as a person. And so this guy is on the wrong side of all of these protective, and I understand why they're being protective, moms and dads um, that think this person is trying to in some way um, violate or take advantage of or... I, I don't know what the, the the word is that people are thinking. I'm not thinking that particular line of thought myself. Um, but wow, this is uh, uh, a fluster cluck. Yes, good wording. Good wording. <laughs> Again, when 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 my wife saw this, she goes, "Are you sure you want to discuss this one?" Because 
there's going to be very strong opinions on both sides, right? We're going to have photographers. Photography has become the see something, say something crime, right? Yeah. First of all, nobody really doing bad things needs to take pictures because you got Google Street View, okay, first of all. So <clears throat> that type of thing's out of the picture. But in there terms of are casing a joint and what have you, in yeah, terms of the crimes that they might be But there are creepy people that do, you know, we've all heard about the, you know, taking pictures up skirts or whatever. There are people who use cameras for bad things. And I it's saw not- an article recently that said that up to a third of all um, flight attendants, uh, female flight attendants in Japan, uh, have either direct proof that they have had a passenger try and take uh, upskirt pictures uh, or photos of them uh, in uh, in sort of sexual connotations, or they know it's happened, but they haven't actually seen well, it see, based and, on comments. And that right there... Is why I want to want to make sure I, I state this very clearly before all the hate tweets start coming. <laughs> I see both sides, and I'm not going to try and play both sides. But <clears throat> we as photographers are are in a mode now of defense because it's become the see something, say something. I've had people come up to me when I was photographing my nephew's uh, portraits, modeling portraits, on a in a public parking lot, right, a city owned parking lot against a brick wall, and say, "How long are you going to be here?" You know, I don't know why. What are you doing? I'm taking portraits. Why? Well, because it's my nephew. Okay, well, I'd like you to finish soon because you're making my security guard uncomfortable. (laughs) To which my response was, then why is he not up here? So we're in this mode of defense now that when something like this happens, we as photographers come down very strongly on the photographer side, which can be good and can be accurate. Again, that's a tribal banner that we will wave because we are behind that particular person. Exactly. But for us as a group of photographers, as a community, to not recognize that, there are people like what you discussed with the the flight attendants that do use photography for bad reasons. And to assume that that doesn't exist or act like that could never be us is naivete and it's wrong. So let let me say a couple of things to be clear. I wasn't there. I don't know how he was shooting, which to me is a huge part of it. The fact that he was photographing 100%, if assuming that the fairgrounds are public property. So he's on public property where there is no expectation of privacy. In theory, I'm not a lawyer either, he's 100% legal and the police have talked to him twice and found no wrongdoing. I want to if interject on- at that point, though, because okay. after they talked to him, there was a post from the Ventura Police Department, and the post read, There are photos and a video of a man taking pictures of children at the Ventura County Fair on August 7th of 2019. Uh, The images of the subject have been shared many times on social media and parents are concerned about the activity. The subject was contacted by police at the fair on that date uh, and has been contacted again today for questioning. No crime occurred during this incident. Fairgoers are encouraged to report anything suspicious to the Ventura Police Department, uh, the 24 non-emergency number, blah, blah, blah. Um, Officers can also be approached for help at the fair. And then they continue on uh, to say, here are some tips to consider for keeping kids safe in a crowded place. And I won't go through the tips, um, but they're saying, yeah, we talked to this guy. No crime. Twice. Yeah, twice. No crime was committed. Um, But by the way, here's some advice to keep your kids safe. Uh, As if, you know, everybody is worried. We get that. But you can't really be worried about somebody that's in a public place and is not committing a crime. Well, and okay. 
But here's the thing. This is why I want to be, I've got to be very clear with my words here. Legally, he was not committing a crime, but methodology matters. And I don't know how he was doing it. So I reached out to a couple friends of mine that are, that are street photographers or do something similar to street photography. And they all came back. Everybody immediately jumps on. I feel bad for, for Joshua that this happened to him and, and et cetera. But there needs to be, one of them said to me, I love this quote, there needs to be empathy on both sides, right? If you are a parent and you, and this is what one of them said to me, if you are a parent, pictures nowadays get published so quickly and once they're out, they can't be taken down. So if you see somebody taking a photograph of your minor child and you're uncomfortable with that, then you deal with it. You deal Any with parent it right would right then and there. Because but, if, right, if, but hold on, I got I to gotta clarify yep. this because this is really important. One of the things he said was, nobody came and talked to me about what I was doing. I've been doing this. I have a portfolio. Go look at my work and see for yourself. Yep. But here's the deal. A mother with a child is not going to go confront a strange man at a public fair directly. But I would argue different than what he said. They did go talk to him. They just did it through a legal authority intermediary. Exactly. They they went went to the the police. police. So this idea of nobody talked to me is simply not true. Right. They did. They just had the police do it for them. Now, here's the last thing of this. Mm -hmm. Where it went awry was when they approached the police and the police dealt with it, they should have left it there. Yeah. Because the police found no crime. And instead, they went and they trashed this man. They trashed his reputation wrongly and unfairly and some of the comments were literally violent oh there were death threats in there and this mother that did this thinking she was protecting her kid didn't protect her kid having somebody go interview him fine and the guy says you know what i'm just doing this here's my portfolio i'm a street photographer we're good and it should have ended there and, you know, when I'm out taking pictures in public, I mean, I'll have my camera bag with me. In my camera bag, I have business cards, right? Uh, and I have little note-taking cards, too, where I can write down somebody else's information, like uh, an email address and a phone number. Uh, if, if somebody approaches me and says, well, um, and, and I've had this happen where I've taken a great picture of somebody on a photo walk. They loved it. And they said, can I get a copy of that? And I said, sure, just write down your email address for me. I'll send it to you when I get home. And... I've had other people when I was taking pictures, I think it was actually on Chris Marquardt's workshop, uh, that asked me what I was doing. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm taking photographs for an assignment. Um, and they said, oh, okay. And, and I was. It was an assignment for the workshop. Uh, but maybe you can even say something like that so that your work has a purpose beyond just your own particular enjoyment that just satisfies people. I'm not saying outright lie. It's an assignment you can give yourself. Right. But just make it feel like you are there with some purpose beyond just taking pictures of people as your sole enjoyment. Well, and here's the other thing. There are multiple ways to do street photography. So I've interviewed a lot of street photographers on my show. And there's that that type of street photography where you stand on one side of the street and you've pre-focused on the wall on the other side and your camera is just sitting with your arms folded next to your bicep or whatever. And when you see, like you said, somebody with the right color walk, they're dead between the shadows, you just click a frame off. And nobody knows. And yes, you could make the argument that's creepy because nobody knows. But it's less obtrusive, right? You're a fly on the wall at that point. And here's the other thing. You're not changing the scene. You're doing real, you're you're capturing what's in front of you. Well, here's the thing. One of the things Joshua said in this 
article was, one can't capture life when it's being posed, which is 100% true. But I went and looked at his portfolio. And in his portfolio, which I, I don't know how many other people did that, in his portfolio, there's a great deal of shots where very clearly the subject saw him. There's eye contact to the camera, right? And it quite often looking angry about it or like, what are you doing taking my picture? So he's not being a fly on the wall. He drew attention to himself in those shots in his portfolio. So then the question I asked was, did he draw attention to himself here at the fair? And he might have. One, one of the things he said also, let's not forget that a moral compass does not constitute the law. That's true. Moral compass doesn't constitute the law, but wrong is wrong, right? So wrong may not be illegal. The two are not mutually exclusive. Yep. Creepy and legal are not mutually exclusive. I'm not saying, before somebody attacks me, <laughs> I'm not saying what he did was creepy or that he did anything wrong. I wasn't there. You know, right? I've and, taken some photos of people walking through a busy intersection in Toronto, and uh, I, I had a 3D camera, uh, a relitoscope from 1926. I was just taking it out for some fun, and you get like about six shots on a roll of 120 film on that thing. And so some of those shots, I shot a roll of just me walking through an intersection with random people around me and looking through um, uh, the, the sort of the top-down viewer. Um, whenever I saw something remotely kind of interesting in terms of the arrangement of people and it's in 3D, so I'm thinking about depth, I would randomly snap a photograph. And so here I am walking through a crowd of people that's walking against me and I'm taking a random photograph, very clearly taking their picture with this giant camera that has three lenses on it. Um, not one person even really looked at me, right? Because it's just, it's just a crowd. And Well, and context in our lives matters to us too. Sure. Sure. Uh, now, where where do we all fall? We all fall at a different point on this. And I think that uh, we have to have empathy for both sides. But I think that that's true of people on both sides decidedly, right? You can't, yes. be, you can't be one of these parents that has absolutely no way of seeing somebody else's point of view, uh, just as you can't be a photographer that doesn't understand what impact your actions are going to have for those around you, especially because it's going to have an impact on the work that you're creating. Well, and and let's argue this point as well. What Joshua is doing, uh, whether you like street photography or not, or whether you like Joshua's portfolio or not, what Joshua is doing has a long history behind it. And I love what Marco LaRue said to me when I asked him about this story. He said, look at some of the great classic images of kids playing on the streets that Helen Levitt or, or Mary Ellen Mark or Vivian Mayer uh, left for future generations. It's fantastic to see what life for kids used to be like. It would be a great loss if we don't have images of children playing for all decades in the past, but also in the future. And, and I he's believe right. I've got, yeah, and I've, I've got some uh, great images. If I remember correctly, they were from Henri Cartier-Bresson, but I'm, I, I maybe I've gotten him mixed up because I do like some of those classic street photographers. Uh, and they've photographed children throughout their careers. And exactly. Some of those and we know powerful. what it was like to be a kid in the 40s or 50s because of these people. But here's, here's the bottom line. I don't know what happened that day. I know that the reaction on Facebook was ridiculously over the top. Oh, yeah. And that, to me, and quite possibly could be in some countries a legal issue, that, to me, was bad. 
I don't know what caused it, and I don't know how Joshua acted, but Joshua, to my understanding, is 100% clear legally, and the police say so. But here's the deal. Both sides need to respect space. Yep. If you're doing street photography, understand, we've all feared it or, or heard the stories of if somebody capturing a street photo of someone, they saw them, ran up to them, and went, what are you doing? Delete it. Right? Yep. And some photographers would say no, and then they publish it anyway. You have to have respect for the other side. Well, you don't have to, Steve. Legally, you don't have to, but you no, should. You don't, I, I'm not saying have to. I mean, you have to, right? Again, there is a difference between creepy. Creepy and legal are not mutually exclusive. Yeah, yeah. And so we're, we're so, kind, of, kind of drawing the, the gray line between where they overlap here. If there's a Venn diagram, uh, this guy might fall where it's creepy and legal in some people's eyes. In other people's, uh, they don't find it creepy at all. It's just a, a, a version of the art form. And so it's just respecting the views of others. I don't want to say, oh, you have to always be completely political, uh, politically correct, because I don't have the same views as everybody else. But I also don't want to infringe on the just the general comfort and enjoyability of somebody's day out at the fair, right? Exactly. And but, and again, I'm playing both sides here, and it's because I honestly feel for both sides. I will. There was a there was a movie in the line uh, American. It was American President, I think it was, with Annette Bening and Michael Douglas where he says, uh, I will fight to the day that I die for the right to say those things that make your blood boil, something to that effect. And it's the same thing here. I will fight forever that photographers are legally allowed to take photographs in public spaces where there is no expectation of privacy. That's free speech. I would ask that they do it with respect. Yeah. But if they choose not to, that is their right. Um, because 100%. if somebody has an opinion that is so vitriolic and uh, nonsensical to me, it's their right to have that opinion and to voice that opinion so long as uh, their right to do so does not infringe on the rights of others. Um, and, and I think we have to all remember that, that a lot of people will do things that we personally find uncomfortable and it's their right to do so, so long as it does not infringe on our rights or anybody else's rights in any way. Um, and I guess that just about puts a pin in it. Yeah, and now now uh, I can't wait to see the mail, the, 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 <laughs> the feedback that comes from this. Oh, we try to understand, people, and please uh, be kind in your comments. Uh, let's get into story number three. Uh, this one is thankfully more mundane. Um, Adobe's August update adds, quote, GPU accelerated editing to Lightroom Classic and Camera Raw, among other updates that they've done to a lot of the apps in the creative suite. I had uh, updates from Audition and Illustrator and lots of stuff in between. But as photographers, we care more about the photo stuff. Steve, I'm sure you've gone down through the, the rundown of the stuff that they've added. They're making, it seems to be a big deal about I've almost- loaded it and played with it. Yeah, and I have too, and I'll, I'll get to there in a minute. Um, but they're seemingly making a big deal about things like export to photos in PNG format, which yeah, they can do the now. But in previous updates, that kind of a, a feature, if we can call it that, was in a list of 20 little minor bullet points, uh, not considered to be like the third down from the top in their brand new features, which also include library performance improvements, uh, particularly noticeable in the folder panel, because I'll be honest, it was broken before. Um, yes. 
And so to promote that these improvements are anything more than fixing horrible bugs from the past is a bit of a misnomer. Um, and yeah, sure, they've added batch merging for HDR and panoramas. There's a Which again there. is one to me that doesn't matter because the biggest problem with HDR and panos was just that the program was slow. Yeah. The only reason I needed to do them in a batch was because it was going to take forever. So Let me you can walk you know, away. batch them up and walk away. If you improve the performance, that's not an issue. And, and then the color label thing. Was, oh, yeah. And, and that was the second bullet point is you can now add color labels for collections because everyone was asking for that. Let me ask you a question. <laughs> In your mind's eye, what's the percentage of photographers that actually know how to properly use collections to begin with? Oh, and, and to, to go even further into smart collections too, right? Which yeah. I, I've used because I'm a lazy photographer. And if I can figure out that every image taken with flash with my Canon MPE 65 millimeter lens during the winter months is probably going to be a snowflake. I don't have to tag any of those images to be so. Uh, I'll guess that 95% of the images that end up in there are going to be my snowflake photographs. So right. uh, that's how I love to use smart I collections. Use, I use smart collections for my portfolios. If it's tagged with the portfolio keyword tag, which is in all caps for me because my all caps keywords are non-exporting. Right. So I tag it with a non-exporting portfolio and I tag it with live music. Those automatically go into my music portfolio collection so they're great i just don't think most people and myself included with normal collections use collections properly but now go back to that first bullet (laughs) okay so we've gone through everything except for the first one and now we have gpu accelerated editing and the text continues lightroom classic you uh uses your gpu to make editing more responsive improvements are noticeable in photos with several adjustments and or on high resolution 4k or higher monitors great you know but here here's my first problem is uh they've had gpu acceleration in lightroom for a long time uh, yeah, the, you've always had the option in the settings to turn your GPU, GPU on. It's not like this is new. It's enhanced. Maybe they could have used the word enhanced because that would have been more truthful. I uh, would argue it's new in the fact that it actually works. But OK, we'll go into that in a minute. <laughs> yes. Uh, so it, it works to a greater degree than it has in the past. Uh, and I did notice that certain uh, adjustments, especially jumping from image to image, uh, that the image already has adjustments on it has been improved, especially if you don't have uh high resolution previews uh, enabled on it. So there, there is a, uh, a speed increase in the workflow. And then it completely halted my system for about 20 seconds. No response. The mouse wouldn't move or anything. Really? And I was about to turn off the computer when I noticed my mouse started to move again. Because uh, I thought that I had a, a hard crash that required a, uh, a hard reboot. And this did not happen ever in Lightroom prior to me turning these features on. I don't have a lazy GPU. It's a little older, but it's a Radeon R9 Fury X, which was a flagship product from a few years ago. Um, And it's more than capable. It's not like it was stuttering. And the drivers on that product are very mature. It's not like it's the latest release and they need to make some compatibility changes to it. So to have issues where it's stuttering to the point of me thinking I have to turn off my computer... I'm not happy about that. And, and it's I understand interesting you had that experience because my, my experience with Lightroom, well, first of all, I don't trust Adobe. Adobe <laughs> has released so many updates where they say, oh, yeah, we've improved the performance. And then I install it and it's, it's worse, literally 
noticeably, demonstrably worse, right? The first troubleshooting step you do when you have trouble with Lightroom, the first thing is go turn off use graphics processor in the older versions. Yep. So mine has been off for a long time. And I, when I saw this, it's like, yeah, there's no way I'm going to turn that back on again. I'm going to turn it on to test it. And then <clears throat> I'm done with it. I'm never going to do it again. They also say, like you said, 4K or higher monitors. Well, in old documentation, they actually reference that the GPU would help you with higher resolution monitors. But let me say this. GPU acceleration has always been here, but it was in the develop module only, and it was limited to specific tools in the develop module. That's why spot removal was an absolute pain in Lightroom, and you always did it last. Yep. Adjustment brushes, radial filters, graduated filters, you always did those last because they aren't GPU accelerated, and there was no GPU acceleration in the library module moving photo to photo. Well, now it not only works with almost all the tools that I know of in the develop module, <clears throat> it works moving photo to photo. And so let me, let me explain how I do my editing. I'm weird. I have a Wacom tablet I use on occasion. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Most everything I do with my touchpad. But what I tend to do, because I like minute movements, I'll move my arrow over a slider, exposure, texture, vibrance, whatever, and then my mouse arrow. And yep. then I will use my keyboard arrows to increase or decrease. In the old version, if I dragged it with the mouse, I would see the change smoothly. But if I used my arrow keys on my keyboard, the screen would blink and refresh each time, huh. thereby causing my eyes to blink and I wouldn't be able to see the subtle changes. Right. <clears throat> now with this, I'm on a 2017 iMac, 5K, 27 inch, fully loaded terabyte internal SSD, yada, yada. It is fantastic. The sliders move smooth. If I go into full screen, it loads way faster. Radial filters, and uh, by the way, spot removal and cloning, night and day faster for me. Good. And no problems. But in the old version, just last week, I would go to edit a picture and then get a spinning beach ball for 20 seconds like you described, yep. and it would come back. That's gone Well, in my uh, that should have never have been there to begin with, Steve. That makes the software completely unusable and makes people go to the other competitors in the market. Um, I was reading the comments on the article uh, that uh, we found from DP Review, and um, people that have uh, workstation-class graphics cards from both AMD and from NVIDIA have been reporting that their GPUs just simply don't even show up. And these are, okay, these GPUs are being sold to professional content creators, right? Whether it be for video production, for 3D modeling, and sure, for photography. And to have uh, decidedly no support. I mean... Uh, and they do, by the way, Adobe has a document that lists which cards or families of cards are supported. Right. But to leave out the pros... Right, the people that you know, they'll cater to in Adobe Premiere, they know how to uh, you know write for these cards, and just to remove them entirely from a product like this just kind of uh, reads me the wrong way. Uh, one issue that I've always been having with uh, Lightroom, both before and after the update, it's still persistent, is if I load in a high resolution image from my uh, Lumix S1R, that's with the high resolution mode that shoots a 187 megapixel image. And I click in onto it to 100%. It displays a, uh, a loading bar for, um, I don't know, 
10 seconds, 20 seconds, somewhere in that neighborhood, and then blank. It does. Yeah, not, I, I get that on a 30 megapixel image. It, it just doesn't render anything at uh, at one to one to the actual pixel p. But it loads up fine in uh, in camera raw, and it loads up fine in in uh, Photoshop. Of course, once those pixels, uh, those raw photo sites have been rasterized. But I, it, I am surprised they gave us four options though. Yep. For GPU acceleration. Well, they give you off. Obviously, mm-hmm. they give it just for image processing. Or just for display, or auto, which is the default where it looks at your card and decides what to do. It's like, well, just turn it on or off. Yeah, and and if you're giving these different options because you're having technical issues implementing it across the board on, on every GPU That's what it from looks at like, least yeah. three different manufacturers, well, solve that problem first. Take all of those oodles of money uh, that your shareholders are very happy that you're making now at the Creative Cloud and roll that into a really awesome feature that just universally works well for everybody. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. They, they, keep in mind, by the way, they did upgrade. That we're talking about the classic, not the cloud. Yeah. They updated the cloud version, the, the standard Lightroom, as opposed to Lightroom Classic as well. That's right. Um, so there, there's updates, as I mentioned, to other Adobe uh, programs across the board for their August update. If you have the Creative Cloud, whether it's just for photography or anything else, just go and check and see what your apps now do. Most of them were just bug and performance fixes. Uh, nothing yep. really major I saw across uh, across the way. Of course, a couple of new cameras uh, have gotten support. I think the Sony a7R 4 was listed uh, as being supported in this update so that people, when they get their shiny new Sony camera uh, right out of the gate, they will have raw support from Adobe. So yeah, you know that was actually pretty quick. I got to say that, that, that was, was a really fast quick. turnaround on support for that camera. And, and I'm sure Sony had a hand in making sure it was that quick. Um, but uh, you know, that that benefits the people going out to buy those cameras. And I've I've had this happen to me before, uh, partly because I'm sponsored by Panasonic and I had some um, uh, early uh, test copies of some of their uh, S series cameras. I shot raw and jpeg because i knew that i could not process the raw files at that time i would only have access to the jpegs for who knows how long weeks or months before i would have any level of industry support yep all right let's go on to our fourth and final story (laughs) uh public service announcement from petapixel canon dslrs are now vulnerable to ransomware and update yours now uh there should be an asterisk there because you cannot update yours yet uh so uh canon has issued an official security advisory for its wi-fi connected digital slrs after a security company showed that they could remotely hack into and install ransomware on a canon 80d the findings were shared with Canon ahead of public reveal, uh, and they have left Canon scrambling to patch a serious security flaw. And we're not talking about this just affecting the ADD. This is affecting a very large number of cameras. It's, it's their actual picture transfer protocol. The that's... picture transfer protocol, which is used, uh, the, the, the PTP is for like connecting to a printer, I think, right? Which... I don't know of anybody that's ever really used this feature. Uh, and there's a vulnerability when you can connect into the device. Um, and Steve, you watched the video of this, I'm sure, right? Well, okay. So when I first saw this article, before you told me we were going to talk about it, I thought, yeah, but, you know, I'm not really worried about my camera in in this scenario. And then I watched the checkpoint video. And it literally made me go, Whoa! Because it was hilarious when you're watching that thing getting taken over wirelessly 
from a laptop. Oh, yeah. But I do got to pick apart one thing. Technically, the title is correct. Canon DSLRs are vulnerable to ransomware. That is a true statement. However, that's not really what Checkpoint said. The title of Checkpoint's video is Ransomware on a DSLR Camera because they have clearly said that they believe uh, that this would affect almost any other company, right? Well, if they were using that's a key distinction. Yes, they exploited it on a Canon as a proof of concept. But their quote was, based on our results, we believe that similar vulnerabilities can be found in the PTP implementations of other vendors as well. Right. And so if you actually pull up the um, uh, the service advisory from Canon, uh, they mention a number of uh, CVEs. These are uh, um, uh, vulnerability identifications that get registered uh, as soon as they're discovered and then hopefully get patched. Right. Uh, there's one, two, three, four, five, there's six. There's a ton of them. Six different vulnerabilities that maybe you need to use one or another or one and all of the others in order to accomplish this. One of them was really, did you go read the Checkpoint article? Uh, I read parts of it, but... Uh, this one was interesting. Right yep. Uh, CVE 2019-5998, which is a buffer overflow in the Notify BT status, which is Bluetooth. Yep. And quote, even though our camera model doesn't support Bluetooth, Okay, let's get that clear. They're doing an ADD, which, by the way, the ADD does have a patch that was released on August 6th. But they're doing an ADD. Even though our camera model doesn't support Bluetooth, some Bluetooth-related commands were apparently left behind and are still accessible to to attackers. In this case, we found a classic stack-based buffer overflow, and exploiting this vulnerability will be easy, making it our prime target for exploitation. And it wasn't even supposed to be there. Um, They left behind the code they didn't need, which is arguably not that uncommon, but it's also bad practice. It is. And if you look at the cameras that that they say are affected, the EOS uh, 1DX and 1DX Mark II, as well as the the 1DC, these are flagship products, people. Uh, The 5D Mark IV and III, the EOS R, uh, the 5DS, 5DSR, all of these, including some power shots, uh, the um, SX70HS, SX740HS, the uh, G5X Mark II, and loads more. If you own an 80D, you're vulnerable. If you own a 70D, you're also vulnerable. Um, and I'm reading from, uh, I found another article on Canon Rumors here, where uh, it states, firmware update information will be provided for each product, in turn, starting from products for which preparations have been completed. So basically they're saying, when we get around to updating the firmware on these cameras, right. uh, we'll let you know. Which they means- did the one they found the vulnerability on, and the rest are in development. And, and we should, you know, let's not scare people. You know, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. No reported cases so far of the exploit being used in the wild. That's number one. Two, you'd have to be somewhere with your camera on with the networking and Bluetooth features, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth features on. And you'd have to be accessible by somebody else. The person around you would have to know how to do it and know you've got your camera on uh, to do this, which takes time. And you'd have to care about the photos that are on the card. Now, this can also be done over USB, but if your camera's connected to a computer that has a virus on it, you got bigger issues to begin with anyway. Right, right. And, and chances are, if it's a ransomware virus that's going to be infecting your camera via USB, it's probably already got all the stuff on your computer to begin with. Exactly. Um, but 
let's talk about a, a hypothetical scenario here, uh, Steve. What if you are at, um, close to me is Niagara Falls, and you have crowds of people walking up and down this railing uh, near the falls, constantly a new group of people every minute. It's nonstop the entire day, and a lot of them are carrying cameras. Some of the cameras might be on this list. What if you're just sitting on a bench with your laptop on, and it is an automated system that will automatically just connect and encrypt uh, all of the files on that camera. Now, this would be important because those files are valuable. You're traveling. These are travel photos of your vacation. You might have been to five locations before this. Maybe you don't have another memory card. Maybe you have so many meaningful images that you've just taken that day that you haven't had a chance to offload yet. And so somebody with malicious intent in a crowded location such as that could potentially start infecting these cameras immediately. Okay, so my response to that is is this. Those features for wireless and Bluetooth on most cameras come disabled by default. You have to enable them and configure them. Of the people standing at Niagara Fall, leaning over the rail, getting spray and taking pictures with their DSLRs or point-and-shoot cannons, the number of those people that use their phone over Bluetooth or Wi-Fi to get a picture off of it are very, very minor from a percentage point of view, I would guess. Well played as devil's advocate. And, yeah, I mean, that's my job. I play I play a devil's advocate on TV, I think. But, so first of all, the, the target audience there for your hack is smaller than it would originally appear. Secondly, I, because I'm into tech, I turn off my Wi-Fi, I turn it on every time I want to use it. So it doesn't stay on. So, okay, now I actually do use the feature, but if I was in front of you, good luck. And third, it takes time to do this. And most likely in that, you know, I'm going to use the phrase drive-by, we'll call it walk-by. Walk-by scenario, people are walking up to a rail, taking pictures. They're there for a minute or two and they leave. The odds are you wouldn't have the time to execute this. But again, even if you did have the time to execute this, you've still got other issues. So, yeah. It, it, I, I don't see paper, this as dangerous this as people are making it out to be. Uh, on paper, it's a huge issue. In practicality, I believe you're right. That yeah. the, the number of people that would be in a scenario where they could be affected by this is slim to none. I guess the PSA here is just turn off your Wi-Fi and communication features on your camera until you get the firmware update. Uh, and it is nice that Canon has listed on some of these that uh, they're going back all the way to the 1DX, which is yeah. not a new camera, and they'll be issuing firmware updates for that. So, Well, they're uh, not innovating elsewhere, so they have time on their hands. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose so. All right. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> Steve, before we get into our picks of the week, you mentioned uh, your podcast behind the shot earlier. Where else can people find you on social media and such? Uh, people can find me, obviously, at the podcast site, which is BehindTheShot.tv. My personal site is SteveBrazel.com. Links to all my social media are there. It's like Brazil, but two L's. Uh, but I'm Steve Brazel on Instagram, Steve Brazel on Twitter, and Steve Brazel Photography on uh, Facebook. And stop by, have fun. Perfect. And uh, I follow you everywhere there. By the way, the and, podcast, uh, and you're in there, the podcast also has a YouTube channel at Behind the Shot. But I just created a Flickr group for uh, yes. Behind the Shot. You're in it. And I'm hoping that you and I will do some stuff on Behind the Shot 
as we start to build up the membership in the Flickr group. So go join the Flickr group. With yes, Dona. yes. We're, we're hoping that we can get another project going between Steve and I. So if you like us bantering back and forth, there might be more of that to come. It's still in the planning stages. Uh, but check out that Flickr group on BehindTheShot.tv uh, because the more people we have there before we get started, the better, I guess. Yeah, so yeah I'm going to wait until we get a good amount of people. I haven't... Today's show is the first show of mine that went out and mentioned the Flickr group. So it's going to take a little bit of time to build it up, and then I'll start using you know, that group to do some show stuff, too. Thanks for mentioning that, Steve. Uh, let's get into the picks of the week, then. Wind down this episode. Uh, why don't you go first? So I sent you two, and I can't decide. So I'm going to ask you, would you rather hear about a mic, or would you rather hear about a mobile camera? Um, I'm going to say mobile camera. Okay, DJI Osmo Pocket. I had no desire for one of these, zero. It was like, yeah, okay, I've got a DJI Osmo Mobile. I can put my phone in it and I can have fun. And I used it at WPPI uh, the last time doing interviews and I love my Osmo Mobile. It's been handy, but it is kind of a pain. And then what happened was I'm going to Photoshop World next week in Las Vegas. I want to do interviews, but I don't have somebody to hold my pocket and film me while I'm interviewing somebody. But how can I do this easily? I don't want to just set my phone up on something and balance it on this Osmo uh, mobile. So I started looking at the pocket and I found out I have a couple of friends who own them and love them. So I thought, all right, I'll, I'll check it out. And I bought it. This thing is a blast. It's so small. The video is gorgeous. The sound of the built-in mics actually is not bad at all. Let's go back to size. How small is it? It is like a large mm, stick of gum type thing. Um, at least the <laughs> handle is. And then you have the, the camera on top. It's probably five, six inches long, maybe an inch by an inch around. Not bad. Uh, I mean, it's, it is really, really small. It does 4K video. Um, it has you know face tracking. Now, the one, what I did was I bought a handle for it that you can put the phone in and the camera in, or just the camera, but it adds a tripod mount. And when I go to Photoshop World, I'm going to take my Joby with me, my little Joby flexible tripod, put this on it, and then use my phone to program it to detect my face or the person I'm interviewing and just have it do face tracking and film this while we're there and hit record. Now, the downside was I didn't realize this has no wireless features built in. Well, maybe no that's Bluetooth. a plus side after the Canon hacks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because it's safety first. Right. Um, and I was, I got back and I'm like, how do I control this thing from my phone? I don't, I need to be able to see it when I'm interviewing someone. The stand, which comes in the expansion pack, I bought the little teeny stand. You clip it on the bottom and it adds wireless oh, so okay. that you can control it from your phone. And this thing does hyperlapse. And time lapse. And the cool thing about the time lapse, a friend of mine, a mutual friend of ours, Troy, showed me a time lapse he did at his pottery class, where over an hour, he started it to the left, had it kind of move up, then down, and the whole time moving to the right over an hour's time. And so you can actually program a path that the Very camera cool. will follow for the time lapse. I'm just, I'm, it's 350 bucks, man. And I got to say, I'm impressed. If you buy the expansion kit, add another 100 to that. The expansion kit comes with a small memory card. But yeah, and what I'm using this with is this is going to be my video. My audio is going to be separately. 
uh, even though the mics on this are good, there is no external mic jack. That's the downside. So you'll have to. There is a USB C connection on the bottom. DJI says that they have a USB C to three and a half inch millimeter adapter that you could plug a mic into, but it's not available. Well, let's hope it gets available soon enough. I mean, DJI has been pushing out hardware very fast, uh, doing new iterations of everything that they're up to, from drones to these uh, uh, Osmo cameras and everything else. So you'll get that eventually, Steve, I'm sure. It's it's a pretty awesome device. One One other downside, might as well pick on them too. It has a little LCD screen that can be hard to see, but you can pant, you can tilt up and down with your finger on that screen. There is no horizontal pan on the screen. Their idea, I assume, is that you would just turn your hand. Makes sense, but there's something inside me that still wishes once I had my finger on the screen, I could just move around like a joystick. Yeah. Would be nice. But other than that, this thing is, I'm I'm impressed. Very cool. And for $350, I have uh, a sound card that doesn't work uh, for the same value. It's just that it's in your hand. <laughs> and it doesn't work well enough for recording audio. Exactly. Um, but my, my pick is actually a, um, a paper that I did some printing recently for an art show. Nice paper. And uh, I, uh, I've used some metallic papers before, but I don't like an overtly glossy metallic paper because I feel like it it stands out too much from the artwork and and the material should not be the first thing you notice it should be the artwork itself uh, and they should have some uh, level of synergy there and in the past I've used uh, ink press has a metallic satin paper and I think your uh, favorite paper manufacturer Red River paper they've got a, a, a metallic luster that they have in their portfolio yeah. as well uh, which would be very comparable and I would like that too but there's something new on the market from Hanamule and it is their photo rag metallic. And I've used their photo rag papers before for some of my fine art printing. Um, and I like the texture that it had. It's like a gloss, but it has a slight texture. And it's not really brightly gloss, but it has a punch to it. Uh, so just curiosity got the better of me. What would a metallic paper in this, uh, in this area kind of look like? And on B&H, they actually have, uh, if you've got a 24-inch printer like I do, they have a 24-inch by 16.4-foot roll. It's a sample roll. Um, and it's $46.67. Really? So Yeah. And so I bought it, and I used it all, and then I went, okay, let's get a full roll. The full roll, which is 39 feet uh, long, is $180. So this didn't make any sense. Like, based on square footage, I ended up just going back and rebuying three new sample rolls at $46 and change a piece because it was very good. How Uh, does this... Hammermule is, you know, top-of-the-line paper. How does it hold the blacks? It holds the blacks phenomenally. Um, you have to understand that with the uh, the sort of the, the gloss will give you a reflection uh, so that if you're viewing it on a slight angle, the blacks will have that reflective quality right. to it. But they, they stay, uh, if you don't have that direct reflection, really nice and dark. But what really got me, something that I don't know many people would have tested, but I've got uh, a bunch of ultraviolet flashlights. And a fun test that I usually do to uh, uh, show students um, what optical brightening agents are in papers is I shine the ultraviolet light on a piece of just white copy paper, and the thing glows blue like crazy. Like, um, And if you take that same copy paper and put it outside on the snow, uh, something you don't know a whole lot of in Southern California, Steve, but if you were to put uh, a white copy paper on snow, it noticeably looks blue. 
compared to the neutral color of the snow around it. A lot of papers contain uh, ingredients that will fluoresce and make the paper appear brighter in visible light than the amount of visible light striking it would have occurred. It's cheap to do that. It's expensive to make paper bright white without using any level of fluorescence, and those fluorescent agents will decay over time. They, uh, they're, they're non-stable, non-archival. Right. Uh, and so when you shine a, uh, an ultraviolet light source on a paper, if it doesn't give you much response, it, there's many metrics to this, but it is one uh, moniker that would say that that is an archival paper. And yes, there's certifications and this and, paper. And really, if you're going to print... Get yourself an archival paper, and and I should mention this printer behind me. I just did a review of it. It was going to be like a twenty thirty minute review with a couple of small interviews. It turned into an hour and a half with my opinions on this, the unboxing on this, an interview with Canon, not just about this printer, but about high end printers and what to expect, and an interview with Red River Paper. Again, not just about Red River Paper, but about the differences in the types of paper and the important role that paper selection plays. So to me, always, if you can, choose archival paper that does not have those chemical additives. And when I shined my uh, ultraviolet flashlight, it was so non-responsive, more than any other paper I've ever shined a bright ultraviolet light on. Yeah, and I would expect with the the metallic components that there might be something else that's non-archival in there, but it got certification uh, as an archival paper, and so I'm very happy with that. Uh, I might do some tests and, and leave some uh, sample prints, one in a drawer and one in a sunny window, and just see if there's any uh, decay over time. But by now, I'm I'm pretty happy with it. And I'm you know what would be interesting is for you to do a video on your printing process. Yeah, well, I've got a 44-inch printer uh, hanging out behind me. I'd love to show people how I go through that process, not only in the printing, but how I prepare a file. That's what I'm printed. talking about. Yeah. All of it. the The preparing, the printing, your color management systems, your workflow from taking assume the the image is already processed for view the things you do to then prep that image for print and get it out of the printer that that point a to point b would be fascinating i will do that at some point steve but before then i've got a book to write yeah that's true (laughs) which i'm gonna get a copy of and uh it is uh anybody that's curious it's coming along nicely i'm doing page layouts and stuff right now and i'm still shooting some images for uh certain things that uh i i haven't uh you know just by virtue of not needing uh, until i decide to put a book together and realize you don't have this product shot or this comparison shot and so i'm kind of filling in those uh, those holes as uh, as time goes on but uh yeah i'm looking forward to having that out in people's hands and once that project is put to bed and delivered then maybe i will do that video um but uh, anyhow that uh the only downside about this new Hanamiel paper is I wasn't able to color calibrate it because of the weird reflective surface. It really messed up. I've got an I1 ISIS, which is uh, X-Rite's top-of-the-line calibration right. unit, uh, and it didn't have any issue with other metallic papers, but this one is just by whatever It literally virtual- couldn't read the paper? It gave me so many errors. It took like an hour to process the profile, and I'm like, something's broken here, and I just went off and I came back. And yeah, the regular, uh, kind of the, um, uh, the the gamut profile, three-dimensional structure, kind of looks like a liver uh, if you're looking at it in 3D and moving it around. It's just that, that kind of shape. This one had all sorts of spikes going out into d- different directions because those were just completely errant values, uh, and the calibration was meaningless I wonder- at that point. I wonder if there was a way, well, I don't know, because it seals when it goes to the paper. It doesn't allow light 
in. So well, uh, but but here's uh, here's the, the the key difference is if I were to use a, a polarized light source, I wouldn't have that problem. And Xrite has also just announced their i1 Pro 3, which has uh, it's a color calibration unit. It has the ability to use uh, an M3 uh, calibration mode, which includes polarized light. And so if you can polarize the light source, you can remove some of those reflections that are causing those errant readings. And so the only reason why such a product would need to exist is if previous products had problems with certain papers right. getting accurate results. So That was just announced this week or last week. Too. Exactly. And I haven't had my hands on one of those yet. Maybe X-Rite will send me one to test. Uh, they are kind of one of my sponsors too. So maybe I'll get a chance to, uh, to compare to see if that will perform better than uh, the existing hardware that I already have. But I used, uh, you know, with no other recourse, the uh, uh, ICC profile prepared by Hanamiel, and it worked just fine. So uh, I was happy with the results. That's my pick of the week. Sounds good. All right, that is it. That is another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. Thanks for hanging in to the end, everybody. Uh, as always, you can find the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. You can find Steve at behindtheshot.tv. And uh, all the show notes of the stuff we talked about will be uh, on the website for you to enjoy, click through, and comment. If you have any opinions on any of the stories we talked about, and I think you might, feel free to uh, either email us privately if you don't want them to be displayed publicly, because um, as we can see by that Petapixel article on the street photographer, uh, any comment with any opinion, somebody's going to chime in with a counter-opinion. So... uh, Yeah, let's just be polite, people, and carry on as photographers. It's time to get out and shoot.